We are, of course, in the book of Revelation, lesson number 25, wow, chapter 19. We're going to get started if you have Bible or your phone, get that out. I'll be reading tonight from the New King James Version, chapter 19, after these things. If you have your Bible with you, scroll back to Revelation chapter 18 and notice that it begins with the same three words, after these things. So that tells us that kind of establishes a timeline as we've been talking about throughout the book of Revelation. It will say things like that to help us understand the timeline and what we're talking about. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia. This word is repeated four times. If I was preaching, I would stop and have you say, Hallelujah. So I won't make you do that. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all of you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. Somebody tell me who this is. Jesus. It's Jesus, right? We learned earlier in Revelation that he's faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, 
to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. So as we look at this, four times the word hallelujah or hallelujah is repeated. This is a worship service in heaven. It is kind of like, anybody ever heard the hallelujah chorus? It's especially popular around Christmas time. And so there is rejoicing in heaven. As I said before, this chapter begins just like the chapter before, chapter 18, after these things. So the obvious question for us is, what things? After what things? So this is describing the time frame after the religious and political slash commercial or economic system of Babylon. So the last two weeks we've been talking about the commercial, political, and religious system of Babylon that is being destroyed. And so this is after that has happened. So that's the timeline. So when you look at this chapter, it's an overview. As an overview, you'll see that evil has run its course and that the tribulation period is drawing close to an end. The tribulation period is God's wrapping it up. He's completing it. It's coming to uh, its finality. It's not there yet, but it's right at the door, right? As we're reading this and looking at this. So chapter, we're on chapter 19. How, how many knows how many chapters are in Revelation? 22. So we're very close to uh, the end of uh, Revelation. So the tribulation period is ending. The armies of the world have either already been de demolished or are demolished at the Battle of Armageddon. So we see that that has happened. You can take this chapter and kind of compare and contrast. In heaven, there's rejoicing and great joy and hallelujahs and all of that going on while on the earth, there's mass destruction that is happening. It's tremendous warfare and God is just about to close out this chapter of judgment upon the world. That's what tribulation is all about. So, so there's an opposite picture of heaven, uh, rejoicing going on in heaven, rejoicing by the martyred saints. So heaven is filled with all kinds of different people at this point. You have martyred saints who are worshiping and praising God. You have saints who were carried up in the rapture. You have, you know, all, all of the, the Bible describes here, uh, the 24 elders and all of those things that are in heaven. It's all a scene of rejoicing 
kind of like a worship setting that we would maybe uh, experience in a church service. Speaking of worship, what is worship? What does it mean? We say worship all the time, but what does that mean? Praising God. Praising, it is a, it's praising God. It is assigning worth to God. So he is, worship is, we're finding his worthiness in various areas. And we'll see that this, this chapter does that as well. And the more you understand God's worth, the more you will worship him. And the more you worship him, the more you will understand his worth. And the more you understand his worth, the more you will worship him, right? Uh, it is cyclical and uh, it builds upon itself. How many have ever been in a service where it just seemed like it just became more and more powerful as you went because God's spirit, he's revealing himself to his people and we come in and we know what God is like and we understand the character of God, but there's just something about worshiping God that he becomes more and more real to us. We understand his character and his nature. And so we're assigning worth uh, to him and we get closer and closer uh, to the Lord as we begin to worship him. Imagine being a martyred saint. They've got a reason to worship. They're no longer being tormented. They're no longer being uh, maybe starved to death because they weren't able to get food or buy or sell or trade. If you were alive during this time, you would have a reason to worship and to rejoice and uh, to be happy. So their response is worship. Interesting, as you look at this, these first six verses especially, Bill could probably attest to this. He may remember this. I don't, I don't know. When we were in Haiti, we went to a worship service. Ed Underwood preached. I understood Ed because he was speaking in English and it was getting translated into uh, Haitian, which is a form of, it's Creole. Uh, so it's a form of French. It's not, it's not like French you'd learn in school. It's, it's different. And so we didn't understand them and they didn't understand us. But there was one word that we could all recognize Hallelujah. Because that is the same in every language. I, I was told that for all my life, and I thought, is that really real? But I can tell you when you go to Haiti, they're going to say, hallelujah, right? It's the same in every language. So worship is assigning worth to God that we become <coughs> excited about the character or the nature of God. Uh, and in this first verse, there are four things that they assign to the worthiness of God. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you can see them there. Salvation. So God is worthy because he provides and is our salvation. God is worthy because of his glory. That's the next word. God is worthy. We assign honor to him. God is worthy and power is attributed to him, right? So we see four things they are worshiping and they are excited and caught up in the salvation, glory, honor, and power of God. Those are attributes and, 
and the nature and the character of God that they're excited about. I am not one, as you know very well, who worships quietly. Some prefer to. I think I get too excited to worship quietly. I'm excited about what God's done for me. Uh, we see that that's going on here. My wife one time during a worship setting said something that, that I've never forgotten. She said that the worship service is dress rehearsal for what will happen in heaven. I, I think that's amazing. You see, if you don't like worship, you probably ought to try to get to where you like it, to where you love it, to where you're excited about it because literally down here on this earth, this is dress rehearsal for eternity, for heaven. Uh, as we come together and worship, that's a part of the joy of worship is coming together. I can worship God on my own. I do. Sometimes I go up into the sanctuary when I'm here and there's nobody else around. And man, I have an individual worship service that is amazing, but it's never been as good as the ones that we have together. There's just something powerful about that. Uh, so this is kind of like dress rehearsal for uh, what heaven's going to be, be like. And a little bit later in the chapter, you see that the saints aren't the only ones that are rejoicing, but you have the 24 elders, the four beasts, all joining along in this hallelujah chorus, having a glorious time of worshiping God around the throne. Everything in heaven is centered around the throne and the lamb is on the throne. We've said that many times uh, throughout this uh, Bible study of Revelation. How many have heard the word marriage supper of the Lamb? It begins to describe the marriage supper of the Lamb here as you get further into this chapter. And in Revelation, there's a lot of uh, comparison and contrast, and you see that in this, in this chapter a lot. So the world is mourning because the great harlot is dead, has been destroyed. The armies of the earth have been destroyed. But in heaven... Not only rejoicing, but coming together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. How many knows that we celebrate at weddings, right? I, I think I already have four or five weddings, two or three of them that I'm doing, but we're going to weddings. This, it's a year of weddings. I heard uh, talk of that on uh, the radio the other day. And by the way, they're getting more and more expensive. Just imagine that. So weddings are a celebration of a relationship that has been formed. And that's what we'll see here, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, because we are married to Christ and he is married to us. We are the consummation of the bride of Christ. And we see here that the opposite, the harlot has been destroyed, Babylon, and we have come into a place of rejoicing and celebration as the bride of Christ. So there's this comparison and contrast that's going on. And a harlot obviously is not known for purity, but the church here, what is she dressed in? Fine linen, Fine linen. Uh, clean and bright. That's why, the, that's why the bride wears white, right? 
Uh, it's supposed to be descriptive of uh, her purity and her her uh, sold outness to the groom. So brides wear white. Here's the church in fine linen, clean and bright. And it's symbolic. What is it symbolic of? It tells you right here in the scripture. Symbolic of the good deeds or the righteous acts, some versions say, of, of the bride. So interestingly, you know, there's a lot of things that seem backwards to the world. But in order for the bride to be clean and white and pure, she has to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. We know that on earth, blood stains. And it's not considered, you don't want something stained with blood. But Christ's blood washes us, cleanses us, makes us pure and holy uh, like Him. So we're cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. But the Bible, I'm going to challenge you. The Bible also says we're cleansed by something else. Somebody want to, you may remember what we're also cleansed by? The word uh, of God washes us clean. We're cleansed by the word of God. So uh, we're, we're made clean and holy. Now, it's not because of our own righteousness, right? Christ's righteousness has been assigned to us. There's a scripture that tells us that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So if we are not under Christ or in Christ, then we are not righteous. Our righteousness, what does the Bible say our righteousness is like? Filthy rags. Well, certainly that's not, doesn't resemble purity and holy, uh, but it resembles our own righteousness and our own effort. So in the Bible, there are, various places where it talks about Christ being the bridegroom of the church. Second Corinthians, and you can just jot this down if you want to, uh, if you trust me to tell you what it says. Second Corinthians 11.2 tells us that the church is espoused as a chaste virgin to Christ. This chaste virgin means that we are not sold out to the world or the world system or to our own self, but we are espoused to Christ. We are his and he is ours. And so it's important for us to, we're sold out to the Lord. We're all caught up in who he is. He is our bridegroom. Now, in America, the bride walks down the aisle and the groom watches. And I don't know they tell me I smiled like the Cheshire cat whenever my bride walked down the aisle. And it was a it was a celebration. And we sang to each other and it was fun and we celebrated. Uh, and so that's what this is. It, we should be celebrating that we are the bride of Christ, right? And that he is ours and we are his. Uh, in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, I mean, remembers what Ephesians there is talking about. It's talking about earthly relationships of the husband and wife, but it ties in how Christ treated us as the bride of Christ. And so it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved also the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify, and here it is, cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. 
So that is in Ephesians chapter 5. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or anything, any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So it is the word of God that washes us. And I love this because in the American tradition, the bride is presented to the groom by the father who gives this bride to be married to this man, right? Uh, here we see that Jesus is preparing his bride to present to himself. That's a little bit different. We see that, and how does he do that? How does he, he cleanses us by the blood? You must, you must be cleansed by the blood in order to be saved, but also through this washing of the word of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you have not memorized that, I want to challenge you to memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2. When I was in Sunday school, where's Carol at? When I was in Sunday school, that was one of the things that we were required to learn. Might have even been one of those things in Christian Path Letters that we were required to learn. Uh, and it tells us in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12 to be transformed by the renewing of what? Our minds. That we might prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You see, what's wrong with the world is they think wrong. I mean, my goodness, we're seeing that for sure. Everything's turned upside down. Everything's backwards because their mind has not been renewed by Christ and by the Word. And so uh, we see that. And it's Jesus who's, through His Word, transforming our mind. I'm going to go into some tra Jewish tradition that's going to help us understand the marriage supper of the Lamb a little bit. If you'll give me just a few minutes, there's some traditional things in a Jewish wedding that are not like an American wedding, like I talked about, that will help us understand the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in biblical times, marriages were set up ahead of time. They were arranged marriages. Imagine. Some of you are thinking, I would not want to marry who my mama or daddy would have put me with. But in biblical times, that was normal. And so there was a contract that was set up by the parents for their children who would get married before the children were ever ready to assume any adult responsibilities. So this happened before, before they were, you know, very old at all. Now, this is, this is different, different. I kind of like the way we do it here, but and where you get to pick your own, you know, girlfriend, your own bride, your own. But this was prearranged by the parents. And these children, and they were children, were espoused to one another and considered legally married at the time. All of this is going to make some sense. We're going to draw this parallel of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Jewish customs of marriage, and they'll kind of come together. So the first phase of marriage in a Jewish thing, literally contract, they're considered marriage. If they were to go off, run off with somebody else, they've broken a contract. We understand that. So in the second phase of the marriage, now this ought to sound familiar to you. 
the bridegroom, along with many of his friends, pack up, go to the bride's home. There's this big procession as they travel to the fiance's home and they go get her and they take her to the groom's house. Mouse getting cold chills. How, how many are ready to go uh, to the groom's house? Uh, and, and there's a procession, and they come, and, and it's, it's a formal procession. They come, uh, and there's the, the people are gathering, and his friends are there, and the groom comes to get the bride, and he whisks her away to his home. That ought to sound familiar to you. They blow the shofar too. Yes. Yes, that is where Jesus gets the story of the ten virgins. That, that's correct. Uh, now, there's a third phase of the marriage. Once the bridegroom has his bride at his home, then there is this marriage supper that begins. And all the invited guests, the parents are there. The marriage is consummated. The finality of the marriage, it's sealed. They're together. They're husband and wife after this uh, third phase of the marriage. So how is our relationship with Christ like what we read? Like this marriage supper of the Lamb. How is it like that? The first phase when the parents do this whole contract and the kids are a spouse to one another is very much like when we get saved. When we get saved, we are married to Christ. We are his. The church is his legal bride, if you will. When we are, uh, we are bought by and, and made whole and made pure by his blood. So we're his legal bride. In the second phase, when the bridegroom goes and ushers or escorts, are you ready to get ushered or escorted uh, to the groom's house? Then that is, of course, a description of the rapture. We keep saying, it's got to be soon. So if it's soon, are we packed and ready? See, the bride would have known that not the exact day, and that's very much just like we don't know when the rapture is going to take place. The bride would have known that it was going to be soon and there's going to be a procession and she's going to get taken and, and escorted off to the groom's house but she didn't know exactly when, so she would have been ready. Isn't that exciting? Because the Bible throughout tells us to be ready for we don't know the time. We don't, to be ready. Don't be like the ten, the five virgins who didn't have the oil, like Nana was making reference to, but be ready. Have your bags packed. Have your, your dress on, uh, so to speak. Be ready for the Lord to come back. Uh, imagine the feelings that the bride would have as she waits in anticipation for her groom to show up. Is he here yet? Is that, do I hear them in the background? Are they on the way? The show, I've heard the shofar blow. Are they coming? Oh, I get cold chills when I said that. You see, we ought to have an anticipation our groom coming to get us, to be taken away to his home, a home that he's prepared for us. And so uh, you, you see how this is 
this is all tying in together. And the third phase uh, is this marriage supper of the Lamb. That's going to happen in heaven. And as we look at this, now I did find this interesting, and you you can disagree with me. We can this can be one of those things we can agree to disagree on, okay? But when I look at this, I notice that it describes that there are guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's interesting. Who are the guests? There's a distinction drawn between the bride and the guests. What's the difference there? There seems to be people there besides the wife or the bride of Christ. Now, we've already said, who is the bride of Christ? The church. We are. So who are the invited guests? <laughs> we're also, we're, we're invited, but who, who might be there that isn't the church? Angels. Have angels there? I'm sure. Oh, Kim? Yeah. Jewish, Jewish, people Jewish people of old? Absolutely. I think that could be a description of them. Old Testament uh, people who were Abraham, for instance. Yes. Uh, you know, David. You know, all, all those maybe, I'm not saying this for sure is what this is, but it can you can imagine, guess, because we are the bride of Christ. It does not say that anyone else is the bride of Christ. Now, there's some interesting things that Israel's called. As we, as we look at this, maybe, okay, I, got, I have a question for you. What is the time frame for the church? What's the official church? What's the time frame? I would say from his resurrection until we're raptured. That's the time. That is the age of grace that Brother McKinley would talk about. The, that is the time frame whenever that is the church, considered the church, the bride of Christ. Uh, Jesus said, I'll build my church, right? So the church is from his resurrection to his rapture. If you agree with that, there are some people who get saved after that. Who are they? Some of the Jewish people, right? Uh, those who are tribulation saints, are they officially a part of the bride? I don't think so. Are they saved? Absolutely. But I don't think we could call them the bride of Christ. Are they guests? They, they can only get saved through Christ, but they're not, in what my opinion, and I'm just stating an opinion, like I said, I said you can agree or disagree, they are not a part of the official church time frame, the raptured church, yes, the bride of Christ, which is what Christ calls us. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm not saying they're not in heaven. I'm not saying they're less than we are. I'm saying they're different. You're saying they're dead. I'm saying they're guests, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. They were, when Lazarus, the beggar Lazarus, went to paradise. Okay, yes, thank you. So Abraham was in paradise. That's not in heaven. Paradise was a different place. And so there was a distinction even there between 
those who were in paradise and with God versus those who were in hell or Sheol. I believe they're going to heaven, and we know that they did because Christ takes some people to heaven with him, right? When he ascends. They could be a part of this Old Testament uh, saints, if you will, could be a part of these guests. Now, not that all of this matters too much because, hey, I don't care if I'm a guest or I'm the bride. If I made it to heaven, there's going to be some serious rejoicing going on. Amen? <laughs> uh, so, anyway, we see this. Now, I do find this interesting. So, the church is the bride of Christ, but Isaiah 54, 5 tells us that God is the husband of Israel, which makes Israel the bride of Jehovah. So is Israel married to God and we're married to Christ? I think you could draw that distinction there. It's interesting as we look at it. Hosea chapter 2, it describes Israel as being cast off as the wife because she's been unfaithful, idolatrous, acting like a harlot, chasing after other gods. But if you read all of the Old Testament, they're not, Israel is not cast off forever as the bride of Jehovah, just for a while. And that relationship is restored during a time frame we haven't talked about yet, during the millennium. So it's just interesting. There's a wedding in heaven, a marriage supper, so as we as it's called, and there's some guests. There's the bride. You know what? what who are those? It, it, it honestly doesn't matter, but it's interesting as we look at all of this. And I just want to make it. I don't know about you, right? <laughs> I will say that I do not believe. How many have ever heard of somebody say, "I don't care if I make it by the skin of my teeth, as long as I make it to heaven." That's wrong theology. It's just totally wrong theology because if you make it to heaven, it will not be about barely making it. Either the blood of Christ has cleansed you and you're saved or you're not. There's no in between. I've heard people say that, but it's not good theology to say that. We're, we're either redeemed or we're not. We're saved or we're not. Covered by grace or we're not covered by grace. You're walking close to the line of sin, yeah. trying to hang out there rather than what we all ought to do is turn and how close can we get to God? That's being lukewarm. That's being lukewarm, yeah. You cross that certain line, you get spewed out, right? Uh, so uh, I, don't want to, I don't want that to, to happen. Verse 10. Verse 10 in my opinion, is a ref reference all the way to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the whole book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a different revelation than what you get in the Gospels. How many have read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? We get a revelation of Jesus in those Gospels. As a matter of fact, each book has a different revelation of who Jesus is. Uh, Luke is son of man. I know that because I had to write a paper about the son of man. But each one, we get a revelation of Jesus. 
But the Gospels in general reveal Jesus in that he was rejected by his people, he was humiliated, he suffered, and he died. That's most of the revelation of the Gospels. It does tell us that he resurrected. That's not left out. But in Revelation, what is he revealed as? He's revealed as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, true and faithful, victorious one. So uh, it's a different picture uh, as, uh, as we look at this. So it's the focus of prophecy is always to reveal Christ. I want to say that again. It's not in your questions, but it's worth repeating. The focus of prophecy should always be to reveal Christ. Now, does it do other things? Yes. Someone operating in the gift of prophecy can sometimes read your mail. Have anybody ever had your mail read by somebody who operates in the gift of prophecy? I have. Someone in the who operates in the gift of prophecy can foretell something that's going to happen. That's the gift of prophecy. But in general, prophecy, just like the book of Revelation, is about revealing Christ. That's what, what the Old Testament prophets do. They revealed Christ. They, they also revealed the sin of the people. Well, Old Testament prophets revealed God, but they were also revealing Christ because he was foretold that he was coming. Uh, so, Prophecy is about revealing uh, Christ, about getting a greater relationship, uh, a revelation, I should say, of him. That's the first 10 verses. The good news is 11 through 21 can be summed up pretty quickly. That's the good news, right? So as a whole, when you look at this, it is verses 11 through 21 is a further description of the Battle of Armageddon. We've already talked about Armageddon, that battle, some of the things that will be seen and done there. But this is a further revelation of what will happen and what will take place. So the kings of the east, the armies of the beast, the kings of the south and the north will all come together to make war. And they're going to come into this 200-mile valley. I told you that's a, big, that's a big valley. I've been there. I've looked at it over from a mountain, and uh, when you're, I've never seen it, but when you've seen it, you can imagine all of those armies of the world coming together. And uh, they come together, they're drawn there by God for this final battle between, I can I say good and evil, between God and Satan. Uh, and they're drawn there, and heaven opens up and Jesus comes with his saints. Uh, we're coming with Jesus. And these armies, rather than now fighting with themselves, they will turn to attack Jesus. How dumb can you get? Right. But the world is driven by a different system. They're driven by Satan, right? So they turn uh, to attack him. Uh, and of course, they're defeated. Great death. The Bible describes blood that comes to the bridle of a horse. And the birds are called out to eat the flesh. It talks about kings, great men, but also not great men and women. 
all who are destroyed at this final battle. And we know that the Lord, along with us, we're with him, so we're victorious, right? Last thing I will ask you is what happens to the beast and the false prophet? Cast into the lake of fire, right? They are destroyed. The armies of the earth are destroyed. And we are getting, things are wrapping up in God's judgment of the world. And we're getting ready to enter into a different phase in Revelation. So let's look at this. In the first six verses, what key word is repeated four times? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Say it again. Hallelujah. There you go. I like that. Question number two. What four things is heaven assigning worthiness to God for? Salvation, glory, honor, and power. That's according to verse one. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, the church is the bride, and Jesus is the right groom, bridegroom, however you want to say that. Question number four. According to verse eight, what does the bride wear? Fine linen, clean and bright. White linen. And that's a description of what? Not in your question. Righteous acts of the saints. In Isaiah 54, 5, it describes that God is the what of Israel? The husband of Israel, which makes Israel the what of Jehovah? The bride of Jehovah. I'm not sure I went over this as well as I should have, but the description of Jesus in what is in contrast to the description of Jesus in the book of what? So gospel and revelations, revelation is the, is the is fill it in, is there. So Jesus is described in the gospels in contrast to the way he's described in the book of Revelation. There's a difference. Probably could have worded that better, but anyway. Verses 11 through 21 as a whole are a further description of what? The Battle of Armageddon. And then finally, question number eight. What happens to the beast and the false prophet according to verse 20? Captured and cast into, alive into the lake of fire. 